Good morning. If you have a Bible next to you this morning, would you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8? We'll get there momentarily. This morning, we're going to continue our series of lessons on some of the lesser known characters in the Bible by looking at a man in the Old Testament by the name of Saul. The nation of Israel was different than surrounding nations during this period of time um, in that it wasn't a monarchy. It wasn't a nation that was ruled by a king. Theologians refer to this, the nation of Israel during this time as a theocracy, which literally means God rules. The Lord ruled over Israel by issuing decrees through prophets and priests. Each major region in Israel had a judge that they would look to instead of a king. And these judges would like lead the people, the people into battle. They would decide civil cases and they would enforce God's laws. Not too long ago, about a month ago here on a Sunday morning, um, we looked at the life of Samuel where we spent a lot of time also studying a guy by the name of Eli. And both of those guys, Eli and Samuel, were prophets of God in Israel. This theocracy governing model was unique to Israel. No other nation could claim God as their leader. But in the same way, that the nation of Israel grew tired of manna in the wilderness, they also grew tired of having this theocracy. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. It says, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. There were three primary reasons why the people of Israel wanted a king. The number one reason was simple. Samuel was no longer an effective leader. He was just too old to handle all the demands of the nation. The second reason was because Samuel's sons didn't follow in his ways. They had lost the respect of the people so that they couldn't take over as Samuel's role as prophet. Remember that Samuel had trained under a prophet named Eli. Remember we talked about it about a month ago that Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Remember that Eli was successful in his public ministry, but his home life was a disaster. The investment that Eli made in his public ministry, discipling young men like Samuel, was an investment that appears he never made at home. And isn't it sad to learn that the same thing happened to Samuel with his children? We don't have as many details about Samuel's parenting skills as we do Eli, but we are left to conclude that Samuel, like Eli, was a great priest, a faithful judge, and a lousy father. He saw firsthand the damage that can come when you make your primary passion your job, your occupation, and it appears that he didn't learn from it. And the third reason that Israel wanted a king, and probably the most significant, if you look at verse 5, was that Israel wanted to be like other nations. The nation of Israel had this special setup with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they wanted to abandon that special setup so that they could be like everyone else. And we could spend the next 20 minutes just talking about that one verse. How many times do we do the exact same thing? We have this incredible partnership with the God of this universe. We have an opportunity to be Christ's ambassadors. And I don't think we really grasp or understand or comprehend how incredible that statement is. Like we are Christ's ambassadors. We are the people that Jesus commissioned to point this world to him. We have an opportunity every day 
to go out and be Jesus with skin on to a lost world that desperately needs to see it. We have an opportunity to enjoy a joy, a peace, and a purpose in Jesus that is found in nothing else in this world. And yet, what do we do so many times? We get sucked into the lie that there is something better out there. We get sucked into this, the grass is greener on the other side. And so many times, we trade all of those blessings and opportunities that we have in Christ and we trade them for one simple reason. We want to be like everyone else. And if you'll allow me to be really candid with you this morning, if you're doing this Jesus stuff right, you're not going to look like everyone else. The Bible makes it clear of that when he says that we are to be aliens and strangers in this world. We're called to be different. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Romans 12, 2, where the apostle Paul tells us, he says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world but to be transformed. Another translation of Romans 12, 2 puts it this way. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Our job isn't to mimic the rest of this world. Our job isn't to be like everyone else. Our job is to imitate Christ. The Bible says that all of these things are written down so that we learn from them, so that we don't make the same mistakes. And just in this four-week series to this point, there have been some incredible lessons to be learned. And my prayer for you and for me is that we don't just take a quick look at these stories and go, cool stories, and kind of move on. Uh, God's desire is for us to learn from people like Esau and Cain and Samuel and Saul, and even learn from the nation of Israel so that we don't make the same mistakes. This request to have a king from the elders of Israel did not please the Lord. Look at uh, what the Lord says to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly. And let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. The Lord's assessment of Israel's request isn't that they have necessarily rejected Samuel, but that they have rejected him as being their king. And God makes it clear there are going to be some consequences when Israel is led by a human king. Look at chapter 8, verse 10. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slave. Notice how many times it says he will take. And more often than not, an earthly king is a taker and not a giver. They're in it for themselves, they're not for others. And Samuel ends his warning in verse 18 by telling the people that God will not answer them when they cry out in frustration with their king. Look at verses 19 and 20 in 1 Samuel 8. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, 
We want a king over us, then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Chuck Swindoll refers to the nation of Israel at this point as a headstrong teenager. After all the warnings direct from the Lord via the prophet Samuel, they still want a king. They still want to be like everyone else around them. Remember, God isn't a dictator. God gives us direction. He shows us the path to follow, but ultimately it's our choice. We can still choose to go our own way, and unfortunately there are usually painful consequences when we do things our way instead of God's, and that's exactly what happens here. Well, it's time to meet Saul. He's Israel's first king. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zerah, the son of Bacorath, the son of Aphiah of Benjamin. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. That's a pretty nice introduction, isn't it? Saul was big, he was handsome, he was the son of a valiant warrior. The word used here for impressive indicates that Saul was in the prime of his manhood, like he was young and he was strong. And we hear a lot today about how superficial our society is today, but Saul's story is kind of proof that we've been pretty superficial for a long time. Uh, their decision to have a king immediately turned them to look to a tall, handsome man to be their first leader. Notice Saul's humility when he was told that he would be the next king in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 21. Saul answered, but I am, not a, am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? Flip ahead to chapter 10, verse 20. When Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin clan by clan, and Matri's clan was chosen. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen, but when they looked for him, he was not to be found. Samuel called a traditional meeting so that it was clear to the people that God had chosen Saul, not Samuel. God directed the casting of lots so that it established Saul as the new king. Well, where was Saul, you might ask? Look at chapter 10, verse 22. So they inquired further of the Lord. Has the man come here yet? And the Lord says, yes, but he has hidden himself among the baggage. Saul didn't strut in front of the crowd and boldly proclaim himself as Israel's next king. No, he is literally in the back surrounded by some luggage. That's incredible. Look at chapter 10, verse 24. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. Like we're off to a pretty peachy start. We've got a tall, handsome, humble king that was handpicked by God and he is extremely popular with the people. But it's worth mentioning again that this whole idea of a human king wasn't part of God's plan for Israel. The idea of a human king was thought of by humans and not by God. So from God's point of view, like this was a sad day for Israel. He had, his people had rejected him as king, replacing him with a young handsome man named Saul. Saul's reign got off to a great start. He was brave. He was capable. He was strong. He acted decisively, and he did all of it with honor. From what we can tell, the people absolutely loved him. But the Lord warned Samuel that this king idea was a bad one. The humble man that we just read about that was hiding amidst the luggage would eventually turn into a prideful monster that would eventually 
take his own life. Saul eventually became rebellious, jealous, and impatient. And I think there's three specific instances that I want to go through really quick where we see Saul beginning to unravel a little bit. And the first incident is in 1 Samuel chapter 13, if you'll flip there. Verses 1 through 4 tell us that Saul picked a fight with the Philistines, and rightfully so. The Philistines were living on land that had been promised to Israel. The Philistines and Israelites were not peaceful neighbors, and so Saul picks a fight with the Philistines and preparing, is preparing for an all-out war. The marching orders from God came through Samuel back in 1 Samuel 10, 8, where he said, go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. The million-dollar question after the command is, is like, would Saul follow the Lord's instructions, or would he take things into his own hands? The Philistines were not the bad news bears. Like in Ohio State football terms, this is Penn State, this is Michigan State. These guys were dangerous. They had iron weapons. They had lots of chariots, which were the modern-day equivalent of a tank, and their army was made up of seasoned soldiers. And all of that led to a high rate of desertion in the Israelite army. Look at 1 Samuel 13, verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. So those that stayed, those that didn't hide in caves and thickets, were trembling in fear. So Saul obeyed the word, the word of the Lord, the command, the order for five days, even though his army was shrinking quickly. He obeyed for six days, even though the Philistine army was increasing. He was faithful through seven days, even though murmuring became widespread among the Israelites. But on the eighth day, Saul began to panic, and he took things into his own hands. Look at verses 8 and 9 in 1 Samuel 13. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, and Saul offered up the burnt offering. Saul's decision to do that had a couple errors. Number one, kings weren't supposed to offer sacrifices on behalf of the community. Kings could offer sacrifices for themselves but never for the nation. That was to be done by the priests. Secondly, Saul trusted himself in this crisis instead of the Lord. Saul moved forward with a human strategy instead of waiting and trusting on the Lord. Look at chapter 13, verse 10. Just as he finished making the sacrifice, the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done, asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Saul rationalizes his decision to sacrifice, basically saying, Samuel, you were late. Like the Philistines, like Michigan State was making their final preparations, time was running out, and I felt like I needed to do something. Notice that Samuel's not afraid to confront Saul about his disobedience. Look at chapter 13, verse 13. It says, you acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel 
for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and anointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Samuel was pretty bold with Saul, wasn't he? Let me ask you, do you have someone in your life like Samuel that calls you out when you don't obey God, when your actions don't obey God? You and I need someone that'll kick us in the pants when we act foolishly. Chuck Swindoll said this, I love this. He said, we need someone who cares more about our character than our comfort. I wanna say that again. I don't want you to miss that. We need someone who cares more about our character than we do our comfort. Every one of us needs people in our lives that will do whatever it takes to help keep us on that narrow road that leads to life. I wanna challenge you to be one of those friends as well. Don't be afraid to be a, a godly friend. If there's someone in your sphere of influence that is wavering spiritually, don't be afraid to call them on it in love. Conflict isn't pleasant, but there are times it's definitely necessary. The Bible says as iron sharpens iron, so does one friend sharpen another. Notice in verse 14 that Samuel informed Saul that he was eventually gonna be replaced by a man after God's own heart. It should serve a reminder to all of us that none of us are irreplaceable. And Saul found that out the hard way. Instead of falling on his knees and repenting for his disobedience, 1 Samuel 13, 15, kind of a bizarre verse, says that Saul started counting his men. He obviously didn't take Samuel's confrontation very seriously. The second incident where we see Saul beginning to unravel a little bit was a situation that kind of dealt with his obsession with winning. Israel ended up defeating the Philistines, but not because of, of Saul's faith, but because of the faith of his son, Jonathan. Jonathan took his armor bearer, which was his prime protector, on a secret raid that killed several of the enemy. God then caused an earthquake that sent the Philistine army running home in a panic. Before Jonathan saved the day for the Israelites, Saul issued an order that nearly cost Israel the victory. Look at 1 Samuel 14, verse 24. Now the men of Israel were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, cursed be any man who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. This mandate likely came during Saul's seven-day wait. No food before a major battle. Why would a leader issue such a mandate? Saul was in the midst of such a downward spiral at that point that he just wasn't really making good decisions. He was foolish. He was irresponsible. And his son Jonathan even realized how foolish his decisions were, were, were becoming. Look at 1 Samuel 14, verse 27. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, cursed be any man who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. Jonathan said, my father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little bit of this honey. How much better would it be if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies? Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? Jonathan basically says, what in the world was my dad thinking? Look at me. God didn't curse me or kill me. I'm still here, and I feel even stronger. Look at 1 Samuel 14, verse 43. 
Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I merely tasted a little honey with the edge of my staff, and now I must die. Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, should Jonathan die? He who has brought about the great deliverance in Israel? Never. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Rather than repent to God and admit that his order was idiotic, Saul is ready to execute his own son to kind of save face and to show who was in control. The final incident, incident number three, where we see Saul's unraveling was during his insubordination at Amalek. Look at 1 Samuel 15, 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. After Saul's foolish order, the Lord let him lead Israel on his own, and he led well. Israel had a period of time, we're not sure if it's months or years, where things seemed to be going pretty well. Even though Samuel had already informed Saul that God no longer wanted him as king, Samuel was now on the verge of anointing Saul as king. And that's confusing. It sounds like a contradiction, but remember that we're talking about a God that is a God of second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth chances. Saul's on the verge of having yet another opportunity to bow down, to repent, and to submit. But unfortunately for Saul, he would fail yet again. Look at 1 Samuel 15, verse 2. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Notice that the command there, maybe the big word is the word everything. The command is to destroy everything. Chuck Swindoll says if a Hebrew slave heard this command from their master, they would know instantly that everything in the enemy camp was under the band. Look at chapter 15, verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. Verse 9. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. There they were unwilling. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. The Lord didn't tell them to spare King Agag in the original order. The command wasn't to keep all the good stuff and destroy all the bad stuff. The original order said to destroy everything. Again, we've got a guy who thinks he knows better than, than the Lord, and that's a dangerous thing. We also see a guy who probably obeyed about 90% of the Lord's command. And guess what? Getting 90% on a test will get you an A. But when it comes to God, 90% obedience is 10% short. Look at 1 Samuel 15, verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Verse 12, early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned his, and gone, down, gone on down to Gilgal. 
When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Saul kept everything that had value, yet he had the nerve to tell Samuel that he had carried out the Lord's instructions. Not only was he a liar, but he was arrogant as well. Gone is the young man that we talked about that was hiding in the luggage on the day that he was selected as king. We now have a guy that is building monuments in his honor to commemorate what he thinks is his special big day. The power and prestige of becoming royalty has now gotten to Saul's head. He was a monster that would listen to nobody. And that, that nobody, that included the prophet Samuel, that included his son Jonathan, and that included God. Look at 1 Samuel 15, 15. Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God but we totally destroyed the rest. That's what Saul said. Notice the pronoun that Saul uses there to describe what transpired. He says they. He says the soldiers kept the best of the sheep and cattle. Saul is the king of Israel. He's the general of the army, and he's blaming Israel's disobedience on someone else. And maybe just as bad, he makes the claim that they kept the best of the best so that they could sacrifice it to the Lord. If Saul really had God in mind, he would have followed God's laws, his instructions completely. But what Saul really had in mind was himself. Look at 1 Samuel 15, verse 16. We're about done. It says, stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Look at verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Maybe the most important passage we read today is in Samuel's response, verses 22 and 23. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and the arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord. He said to obey is better than sacrifice. That's good stuff. A couple quick take-homes as we wrap up. Number one is this. I want to encourage you to remain accountable. We talked about this already, but put people in your life that love God and love you and listen to what they say. How many times did Saul hear the word of the Lord through Samuel and still walk out the door and do the exact opposite? Having accountability partners doesn't guarantee obedience, but it sure helps. Number two, reject pride. Be willing to admit it when you blow it. Chuck Swindoll says, people will respect you more, not less, when you expect, accept responsibility for failure, ask for forgiveness, and make the most of future opportunities. 
So number two, reject pride. Number three, pursue truth. Always strive to do what's right and pleasing in God's sight. It's not always popular. It's not always easy, but neither, neither was Jesus' death on a cross. And the last thing that I wanna leave you with this morning is this. How you finish is much more important than how you start. This race that we call Christianity is a marathon, not a sprint. Saul looked good at the starting line. He was tall, he was handsome, and he was fit, but he wasn't faithful, and he did not finish the race. I decided to run indoor track my senior year at Maple Heights High School up near Cleveland, Um, I had received a congressional nomination to the United States Naval Academy, and I decided to run track after basketball ended just to stay in shape for some of the the physical tests that I would be put through by the Naval Academy that spring. And I remember running in my first ever indoor track meet that spring. I'd never run track before. I had run the mile as part of basketball conditioning, but I had never actually run track. So I'm in my first track meet, in probably the best athletic league or conference in the state of Ohio at that point. And my dad and my little sister are there on the track cheering me on, and I get out to an early lead. And the rest of the guys on the track team are watching, and they see me get out to an early lead. And they start going nuts. Let's go, Coop. Coop's going to win his first ever varsity track meet. Our indoor track was one-eighth of a mile, so the race was eight laps around this indoor track. And I led after one lap, I led after two laps, I actually led after six laps after three quarters of the race was over. But it was about the seventh lap that I realized very quickly and very painfully that the emotions of competing in my first track meet had gotten the best of me. Seeing my friends and family screaming and jumping had gotten the best of me. I realized about lap seven, there was no physical way that I was gonna be able to continue to run lap seven and eight at that same pace. I guess I was better than Saul. I I did finish the race, but I nearly died when it was over. I collapsed in exhaustion when I crossed the finish line. I would tell you, I looked very impressive at some pivotal points in that track meet, but I was anything but impressive at the most important point, the finish. And I imagine if I had the opportunity to talk to some of you privately this morning. I imagine that some of you might say to me, Rick, I've definitely slowed down in this race. Some of you might admit, Rick, I've stopped running altogether. Like I have thrown in the towel on this race called Christianity altogether. Some of you have had temptations or adversity hit you in such a way that you're running actually in the opposite direction. Like you're running the wrong way on the track. You're running away from the things of God. And I hope and pray you'll hear me this morning. Please hear this this point, and it's simple. You can recommit today to finishing this race. Doesn't matter why you stopped running. Doesn't matter how many times you've stopped running. May I remind you this morning that God loves you. And maybe some of you need to hear more than that. God likes you. And God wants to spend all eternity with you. If you're already here this morning, you're watching this, and you're already following Jesus Man, I want to encourage you to continue to do what you're doing. Um, I want to challenge you today to recommit right where you're at, right in your home right now to say, God, I am going to finish this race. And I don't care if you're 60 years old. I don't care if you're 16 years old. You've still got work to do. The day that we think we've arrived spiritually is the day that we, like Saul, run into big, big problems 
There are plenty more hills to climb. There are plenty more valleys to endure. And, and that may be the bad news. The good news is that Jesus promises to be by our side every step of the way. I hope and pray you will make it your mission to finish this race.